and welcome to Tabletop Game Talk On Topic, the show where we talk about tabletop gaming topics of all kinds. I'm one of your hosts, Fletcher. I'm Kitty. And I'm Chris. This week, we're talking about the board game books, volume one and two, or at least we'll be talking about the glossary of those books, which is an easy way for us to cover some basic industry terms, which we use all the time and take for granted. Well, no more. Today, we're taking nothing for granted, and we are making sure everyone knows at least 51 ways to talk about modern board games. That's about one a minute. Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> we can do this <laughs> but first as always a thank you to our patreon friends of the show adam harrison miles clark and the gift of games in grace lake also thank you to our royal our roy <laughs> for upgrading his <laughs> pledge that's hard to say our roy all right all right but i only have a first yeah. initial so like, if you roy. want us to butcher your name too check yeah, us out on patreon <laughs> it's not hard it's really not hard especially when I'm reading it. Um, if you want to <laughs> listen to us live, you can go to tabletopgametalk.com slash live. Uh, that's Mondays, 8.30 Central Time. It's fun. We Let's see. what we're. I, you know something? I forget our pre-show as soon as we press record. But I know we were talking about DTN <laughs> and business. And wow, that doesn't sound exciting at all. Never mind. Don't join our live show. It's super boring. We also talked about falling asleep for a while. So, oh, right, yeah. right. We it talked about really sleeping. really on fire tonight with our pregame show (laughs) this was perfect so so great um uh uh-huh but in an exciting news we are drawing two winners for our 2021 game giveaway at the end of our show before the credits we will draw two winners um general rules for the contest is if you want to enter shoot me an email you only have to send me one for the year just say hey i want to enter and you're in for all year. Um, there's a but list of games at in the tabletopgametalk.com. Feedback at tabletopgametalk.com. <laughs> Email us also, at feedback at tabletopgametalk.com <laughs> if you'd like to enter the contest. There's a link in the show notes, or you can always go to tabletopgametalk.com. And that's the most recent <laughs> episode and all of the show notes and all of the links we talk about. Uh, the one catch to this is winners do have to help cover shipping, um, especially if you're in Australia, although I'm pretty sure Miles gets a pass on that since he's a friend of the show. But usually <laughs> you will have to help. But you don't, anonymous <laughs> listener. You, you have don't. To pay. <laughs> but if you're a friend of the show, boom, there you go. Uh, yes. And you have two weeks. This is why we're drawing two winners, because you have two weeks to get back to me. And if you don't, then you're... Name goes back in the hat, so you could win again. But everyone else um, gets a second chance at that. And yeah. So uh, the list of games that you can pick from are also in the show notes, tabletopgametalk.com, if you don't see them on your podcast listener of choice. And you'll see those. New games will get added in a week or two as well. Not in time for this particular drawing, but as soon as my basement's done and I can get to my games, I will add more to the list. (laughs) Um, Also, we had a quick question that I wanted to answer live because anyone who's listened to the show knows that Great Western Trail is one of my favorite games. And recently, a second edition of Great Western Trail has been announced. And Matthew asks, hey, are you going to get this? Also, it's not just Great Western Trail. There's two other games coming, one next year and one the year after, that has the same general mechanics, but are in different countries. Um the answer to whether or not I'm going to get second edition is yes, probably because I'm me. But right <laughs> now, 
I don't know that the art's any better because it's all updated art. And but I don't know that they're doing anything significant enough for me to be like they're going to fix the game. I don't think anything's broken about it. So I'm not sure that it's going to be a run out and get right away. I just need more information on it, and there's not enough information. So the new covers they look interesting. They look nice. They they're not what I'm used to, so I'm still kind of old man curmudgeoning it and saying, get off my lawn, <laughs> that's not my game. But we'll see. We'll see. Uh, I, I typically do get second editions. Um, Eclipse, second edition, fixed so many things about Eclipse that I didn't realize were wrong. So maybe Great Western Trail second edition will do the same thing. Because it's still Alexander Fister. He's still the one going back and revisiting it. So I have, I have faith that it's going to be awesome. All right, this episode's going to be very long, but I want to give you guys an opportunity to banter in case you want to. Otherwise, we're just going to jump right into this. Ready, go banter. Give guys an opportunity to nope out right now. <laughs> if only Open that was up the opportunity. Your dictionary and aardvark. banter. I have no banter. <laughs> I don't have any banter either. Yeah. Uh, your dog pl- joined us in the pregame show, and she's looking absolutely gigantic and beautiful. Yes, uh, she is 70 pounds, 10 months old, and um, a big wimp. <laughs> <laughs> That's another thing we talked about in the pregame is our children's percentiles. So your do- your child's percentile is very high, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's a golden retriever, so, uh, you know, she's on the bigger side. Aww, I like golden retrievers. They're okay, we're going to cover... so Pantor accomplished. This- <laughs> yeah, mission banter accomplished. This is um I kind of want to make this an evergreen-ish show. So that's why we're not going to spend 20 minutes bantering. We only spent 6. But what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the glossary of the board game book. If you're unfamiliar with board game book, it is an amazing coffee table book for board gamers. It was kickstarted Volume 1, then Volume 2, Kickstarted and Delivered a few months ago. The glossary and both of them are the same. And each spread, typically spreads, it's a left-right page spread, it covers a game. And it, like, the art is amazing. The, there's Sometimes there's interviews. There's always, like, a quick recap of what the game is, player count, MSRP. Um, they've also, for each of their books, like, chose, like, Game of the Year. Um, volume 2, one of the, well... Game of the Year in certain categories. Volume 2, um, Cthulhu Death May Die was the Game of the Year in the strategy category or something something like that. So I'm like, all right, these guys have you know kudos in my book. Um, but I thought this was a good way of talking about common industry terms in a way that it's not just us making them up. Someone who wrote a book did it, which makes it more credible. It's, it's like when I want to get taken seriously, I write a Medium article and then people think that that's real journalism. And it's not. It's just a blog with a, you know, I don't know, a pretty template. But these guys (laughs) did a great job at this. So we're going to go through these and we'll kind of rotate. Some of these are going to be, we'll talk about them fairly quickly because they're not really um, difficult concepts or anything like that. It's just if you've never heard it before, you know, just explaining what it is. And others might require a little bit more conversation, uh, maybe some game examples and such like that. So we'll just kind of rotate through. I don't think I want to read these. So if we... we yeah, we will paraphrase. We will only drop down to the text if we are unsure what the term is trying to describe, which I don't think that that's the case. Some of them, though, 
have controversial definitions, um, like campaign game or legacy game or something like that, where we've actually had entire episodes just talking about <laughs> campaign versus legacy. So we'll read the actual definition and we'll let that settle the argument. Um, so yeah, let's just kind of go through these from the top and we'll rotate so that I'm not talking that often. Um, Fletcher, why don't you start with the first one? Abstract? Yeah. <laughs> okay. The, the topic is that, or I guess the word is abstract. <laughs> well, I don't even know what that's, to call this. <laughs> but that's the thing that I'm actually curious about. So I think Kitty is going to have a solid definition for most of these. I'm not 100% sure that you will. So if there's something that you're like, I've not heard that or I wouldn't have known that's what that description is, you are the representative of the audience that's going to be most valued from this. Also, if you think you know all these words, you probably don't. So listen for the one you don't and we'll see. We'll test you at the end. So I've never heard abstract um, in regards to a board game or used to describe a board game in any way. So uh, for me, I'd have to actually read this text, but... If Kitty actually knows the definition or can summarize it better, <laughs> actually, I no, can. Actually, Fletcher, read the text, and then I want to know whether or not that changes everything about what you know. Okay. A game focused primarily on its mechanic, mechanical aspects with little or no narrative element. Examples include chess, uh, droughts, and bocus. I don't know what that is. Some games, like martial arts-themed, another game I've never heard of. Onitama. Onitama. Onitama are considered to have abstract gameplay in spite of the fact that they have slight thematic elements in their present in their presentation. Okay, I get that. So it's like chess. There's no story. There's yeah. like it's knights and yeah. you know kingdoms or something. But yeah, it's it's the theme is so loose that it doesn't matter that there's a theme. Is yeah. essentially what an abstract game is. And yeah. it can you could be, rename every one of those pieces in the game wouldn't change at all. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. And. And that's all we're talking about when we talk about an abstract game. It's, you know, it's almost what you would think of as a more classic game. Um, checkers, chess, backgammon, those type of things. Yeah. Mancala. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. All right, Kitty. Action selection. What it's is action, action selection? selection. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So usually you have a certain number of actions that you can take on your turn. And you pick one of them, and that will be your turn for that round. So something like you can pick up resources, you can move, you can do a certain kind of thing on your turn, and you choose one of them each turn. And a game that I think of is Scythe, is like an action selection game, where you are choosing one of the actions on your player board in front of you. Did I get it? I'm trying not to look at my screen. (laughs) <laughs> nope, that's perfect. And the key with action selection is you're typically choosing a single action on your mm-hmm. turn. You're not choosing multiple actions. Um, that's no, you're a not taking a of number game. of actions. It's one. Yep. Um, alpha Gamer. This is a Chris. term used for somebody who tends to take over the game. They want to tell everyone else what to do and how to play. You often see this as a problem in co-op games, um, although it doesn't have to be a problem. Sometimes... You know, you have your alpha gamer and you have your beta gamers and they're doing their thing. John says, am I an alpha gamer? And I say, usually not, but I can accidentally become one. Um, This is also, I've heard this be dubbed quarterbacking, which I don't, I I get the idea. You know, you're you're still kind of taking control. Um, But I think alpha gamer tends to be the 
the dominant term when you're talking about that one player that just says, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. And everyone else saying, this is my character, my turn. I want to make this decision. Oh, I've actually heard that. Maybe I am an elf. All right, next one. Um, <laughs> Fletcher, have you ever heard of the term Ameritrash? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so to me, without like going through this whole definition, to me, Ameritrash is all, are all those kind of like old school American games, I guess. I, I, without like calling out um companies i guess i will like milton bradley and like parker brothers kind of like those kind of games where there's not a lot of there's a lot of random gameplay and not a lot of like choice gameplay i guess you know something describe it i 100 percent agree that that could be a valid definition for ameritrash it is not in any way close to the actual definition that how it's that is used and this is what makes this super cool to have your first take on this um Ameritrash games are the opposite of Euro games, and we'll get to those in a second. But essentially what Ameritrash games are, are things that are kind of more combat, conflict-oriented, role-to-resolve type of games. Um, It it even says in here, an exact definition is almost impossible to pin down, but the stereotypical Ameritrash-style game features more direct competition between players. Um, They can also tend to adapt more aggressive themes, such as war, zombie uprisings, alien invasions. Um, Pretty much anything Simon does could be considered an Ameritrash game. There are lots of dice chucking, um, lots of random things happening. Those are what we think of or are talking about when we say Ameritrash, but I love your definition way better. (laughs) <laughs> I still think it also falls into that category. Like, just because they're making newer versions of those games, it doesn't make those ones not Ameritrash. I think that, like, Risk is the Ameritrash game. Yes. Yeah. Uh, question is, would Blood Rage be an Ameritrash game? Yes. Um, mostly because it's not a, not a Euro game. But the one thing that you're going to find is... Um, And I think we've actually done an episode on this, too, Ameritrash versus Euro games. Most games these days have elements of both. So when you look at a game, you can be like, okay, this is Euro game, you know, themed or derived from, and this is Ameritrash derived from. And this is exactly why we're doing this definition show, because we're talking about Euro games, and we're only in the A's. So let's go to analysis paralysis. Kitty. Um, this is Josh, and we did a whole episode on it. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is somebody who likes to analyze their moves. They like looking at all of the possibilities and choosing the best one, which leads them to paralysis. There are too many choices, and so it takes them a very long time to take their turn, causing everyone else to wander off and lose interest in the game. Yeah, sometimes abbreviated to AP. Um, if you're an AP player, you are analysis paralysis prone which means that the phrase I like is, oh, you don't want to play this. This is going to be a problem with AP players because the game is going to take about 10 times longer than it should um, because there's a lot of choices and you just have to choose something. Um, The next one here is app-driven game. This one I think is self-defining, but it's essentially a game that requires that you have an application, whether it be on your mobile phone or tablet, that runs the game. And there's not a ton of these, but there's enough of them where this is becoming more and more common to see. Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition. So Mansions of Madness 1st Edition had a player that played as the antagonist, and then everyone else played against them. And 2nd Edition said, okay, nobody likes playing that antagonist player, so we're just going to make an app do it. So now it's a full co-op game. And there are some people who like the 1st Edition better because they did like being the antagonist. Um, So (laughs) 
those are the type of games we're talking about. Again, there's not a ton of these. Uh, Fantasy Flight, actually, Asmodee in general does a fair number of these. Um, Fantasy Flight probably does the most of any single company. Uh, if this is not app-assisted. Uh, that's not an actual definition, but app-assisted would be the game just plays easier if you have an app to help you. So Gloomhaven has an unofficial, you know, assistant app that you can use. It makes the game run smoother, but it's not required. An app-driven game is actually required. Fletcher, area control. Area control. So I'm not going to read the definition for this either, so hopefully I get it right. But to me, an an area control game is all based upon... Or like you get the most, you get, you win the game or you get victory points or points in some, in some way by controlling areas of, controlling areas of the game, typically a map. And I, and I think of like Risk as yep. an area control game. Yep. Tend to be high conflict games. Uh, but yeah, ultimately your goal is to control as much space on the board as you can. Blood Rage is an area control game, right? You want to control as many spaces as you can because you're going to score points doing that asymmetrical games kitty uh these are games where each player has a different starting condition usually there are player powers or different map positions something that gives each player a different feel to their side of the game something like root where everyone's little critter has completely different gameplay styles Yep. And it can vary. Like Root is, uh, Root and Netrunner would be extremes of the players are playing different games mm-hmm. to something, you know, would Everdell or uh, Dwellings of Everdell. Everdell? I get these confused because of the Eldervale. Eldervale. Um, you know, this one I think has. It's the one you're talking about. <laughs> it is the one I'm talking about. This one has different starting player powers, but they're, you're still playing the same game. All of those would be asymmetrical. Um, it's just various degrees of asymmetrical. Um, John mentions Villainous is a good example of this. It's like a mass market example of this. Uh, Cosmic Encounters, is that the one where it's like everyone a has million their, different? <laughs> yep, everyone has their own alien species that breaks the Ugh. game in their own specific way. Yep. <laughs> All right, so mine is Campaign. And a campaign game is essentially a game that continues from one game to the next. You're going to pull something forward. Typically, your character... Or, yeah, typically your character is going to be pulled forward. Mm -hmm. Now, this might include items and such. This usually, a campaign game as opposed to a legacy game, which we'll talk to in a little bit, um, is completely resettable. You could play the campaign multiple times. Um, It's just a way of having a continuous ongoing story. Gloomhaven is a campaign game. Some people would argue it's a legacy game. We're not going to get into that nuance. But, you know, Gloomhaven essentially... You, as you play through, your characters are going to keep moving through the story, and at the end of the story, yay, um, yay, and, <laughs> yep. And then you could start over if you wanted to. So they actually make if you have the removable sticker pack, you can start over, or if you just don't use stickers at all, you can start over. Which is why Gloomhaven is a campaign game and not a legacy game. Um, just, uh, just buy a new one if you want to start over. Exactly, it's not worth it. <laughs> all right, Fletcher, collectible card game. So collectible card games, or as I called them growing up, TCGs, trading card games. Um, Again, I didn't read the definition. To me, these are games where you have to buy packs of cards that come in sets, uh, usually booster packs or sets of five or something like that. And you assemble some kind of deck and you duel against another player with a certain set of rules. And um, that to me is a... 
I don't know if anybody really collects the cards. They oh yeah, they, they collect them. In, well, I mean, yeah. Like, so it depends well, on the game. Who, who collects the cards without actually playing? Them? Um, pretty I'm, much I, every starter Pokemon player. Pretty much every every kid is like, I don't care about the game. I just want to collect the cards. Um, gotta catch them all. That was a dumb question. Yeah, you gotta catch them all. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, and and it used to be you could describe this like, oh, it's like baseball trading cards, but only it's there's a game around it. But now I think people are more likely to know Magic the Gathering than anything else. But this is really slot machine in a pack. Yeah, they're like, what's a baseball card? (laughs) Yeah, what's a baseball card? Yeah, so it's it's slot machine in a pack. The packs have rare, uncommon, and common cards, and you're just trying to collect them. Uh, you could be collecting them for a deck, or you could be collecting them because you want a full set, or you could be collecting full play sets, which is typically four of every card. Um, however it is, it's a random distribution method. Blind packs where you buy it and open it up and see what you get. And yeah, it's basically the money driver of our industry. As opposed yep. to, and I actually moved this up. mechanic. Yeah. I actually <laughs> moved this up in the alphabetical list because um, these two things are very closely related. Um, Kitty, living card games. So this is Fantasy Flight's um, response to the collectible card game where you are able to buy into this game at any point and you don't need to do the random slot drawing cards you can just buy the cards from fantasy flight have what you need to make the decks you want to make it has the deck construction elements there but it doesn't have the slot machine kind of feel and you can jump in at any point theoretically if you have the money to do it yep i will say um fantasy flight is the only one that can use the term living card game other companies will use the term expandable card game but yeah it's it's a collectible card game without the random aspect. Uh, the downside to these, though, is it can be very, very expensive to get into a living card game late in its cycle. I can't remember which episode it was where we talked about I have a vague interest in the Lord of the Rings living card game. And I looked if I wanted to buy into everything that exists now. It was over $1,000. Yeah. Oh, like, it was probably like almost $2,000. Yeah. I think it was around sixteen hundred. Yeah, like I added everything into a cart that I was like, "Oh, like I remember, please, I remember when please don't that. click yeah. buy." <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, in in theory, if you get down on the ground floor, a living card game can be very affordable. Arkham Horror, the card game, I talk about it all the time, is a living card game. I started from the very beginning, so the fact that I get two of everything isn't as crazy as if I was to start now and say, I'm going to go and get two of everything that's ever been made of this game. Um, It's so crazy. (laughs) It's so crazy. All right. So I get an easy one. Cooperative game. Um, I say easy now because we've, this term's been around for the last 10 years now since pandemic. I don't know the pandemic was the first cooperative game, but it was the first cooperative game that really hit mass appeal. A cooperative game is simply a board game where you're not competing against the other players. Instead, you're competing competing against something on the board or that's coming up from the cars or whatever the case may be. Um, all the players are working together to achieve a common goal. Um, super, super common these days. Um, almost, I don't know, I'd say probably a third of the games that come out are probably cooperative games at this point. 
Uh, Fletcher, this is a great one for you since you're so <laughs> anti this. Crowdfunding. I'm not I'm not anti crowdfunding. Um so crowdfunding. He just doesn't want to be part of the crowd. Like a, that's true i don't know if this is really like a type of game it's just like how the game is made these are gaming definitions right right well i mean yeah so far we've been talking about like mostly types these are types of games yeah yeah but this is not a type of game correct uh so crowdfunding uh to me is just like a game that is funded by people who the production of the game is funded by people who want to play the game um yeah I guess so. Usually on a site like Kickstarter or something like that. Yeah. Kitty, you want to refine? I think he nailed it. It is yeah. a, a game funded by the people who want to play it. Yep. Usually um, through Kickstarter. <laughs> usually through Kickstarter. GameFound is trying to make headway into this now. They've had two campaigns, so I don't know how much headway they're making. Indiegogo <laughs> made a few, some campaigns would go on Kickstarter and Indiegogo. But Kickstarter is synonymous with crowdfunding in board games right now. Uh, it's one of the things that makes our industry work because so many games are so niche that games could not possibly be made if they weren't sold before they went to production. And that's what crowdfunding allows you to do is sell a game before it goes to production. Deck building. Um, so I'm going to say, oh, this is, this is Kitty's. So Kitty, what is deck building? (laughs) I was going to read this, so I'm not going to begrudge you if you read this. Oh, I'm not going to read it. Um, I'm trying not to. Uh, so deck building, to me, it tries to take the elements that are fun from a collectible card game where you're trying to make the strongest deck, but instead of doing it before you play the game, you build your deck while you play. So usually there is a marketplace of cards where you are able to purchase them from the marketplace to add usually into a discard pile. And once you've played your cards, then you add in the new cards, growing your deck as you play. Yeah, that's a, that's a great <laughs> way of saying it. Um, and the reason that I say that I was going to read this is because some people will look at collectible card games or living card games and imply a deck building label to them. When we're referring to deck building, we're not referring to those types of games. We're not referring to games that have you build a deck before you play. We're referring to games that have you build your deck while you play. I've heard the terms deck builder versus deck deck construction used kind of to distinguish those. But it is a really hard one for people outside the hobby who really know what magic and Pokemon like those are such big things that people understand that I'm building my deck what are you talking about yeah exactly (laughs) Um, the deck builder games are much less known outside of the board game hobby so yep it's a tricky Uh, one I got caught up on this on an earlier episode I remember (laughs) yep so the next one is dexterity games Uh, simple definition there is Jenga it's a game that is physically, it's a still a tabletop game, but it involves primarily physical skill versus like tactical or strategic or thinking skills. You might be flicking something down a track or, you know, like pulling a block from a tower Spoons. or stacking something. Right. It's, it's, it's literally you're just trying to, you're trying to physically do something. Dexterity games are great because they're easy for anyone to learn and get into and they can be a lot of fun. They tend to have relatively simple rules, but they don't have to. Um, flick them up is a relatively complex, uh, 
dexterity game. So it's something like Catacombs, where you're flicking discs on a shuffleboard-like thing while you're playing like fan- a fantasy-themed you know, game where you're flicking your sword to try to hit the dragon and those types of things. But those are all dexterity or beer games. Pong. Or Flip beer pong. <laughs> beer pong is definitely a dexterity game. <laughs> Many drinking games are dexterity games. Yes. Yeah. Uh, drafting. This isn't a game type. This is a mechanic, but Fletcher. So drafting game, I think of a game like Sushi Go Party, where there are like a set set of cards um, that are then passed around and you have to draft what you want from those from that set to come up with the best hand or score the most points or something like that. Yep. Here are your cards. Pick one. Here, Well, here are your whatevers. They don't have to be cards. They're typically cards. Right. Um, pick one, pass it. Pick two, pass it. Whatever the case is, whatever those rules are. Um, so you kind of have a feel of what you're passing to the next person, and you're hoping that you get past something great to pick from. Kitty, Dungeon Crawler. So a Dungeon Crawler is usually a game where you are playing a hero, and you are walking through a space where you are going to encounter monsters that you fight. Wait, are you walking or crawling? It depends Hopefully on how walking. big the space is. <laughs> <laughs> Good Do answer. squeezing rules apply? <laughs> yeah. Dungeon Crawlers are kind of like um, D&D in a box is, a, is, you know, yeah, you're just running around going, oftentimes moving a certain number of spaces and fighting. Yeah, it's like simplified D&D much more because like D&D in a box now is like basically trying to replicate a GM. This is like just replicating a dungeon and you don't get to kind of have the characters and you don't have the uh, campaign or world building not all the time. Some of them are much more involved than others. But when I think of a yeah. dungeon crawler, I think of like a bash through, like we are just smashing monsters and grabbing treasure and going. Yeah. There's typically two key things that make it, well, three. Um, one, you're going through some kind of explored area, whether it be a dungeon or wilderness or whatever. It doesn't have to be a dungeon. But the two main things I look at is characters that can get better as they kill things and that characters are killing things. Basically, you're running through, <laughs> killing things so you can get treasure so you can get better. Um, those are dungeon crawlers. Engine building. Um, this is the first one where I don't know that this is in any kind of way intuitive. Maybe not the first one, but this one is hard to be intuitive with. Um, engine building is a way... What you're essentially trying to do is create a system of actions or events that feed into each other, that become more and more efficient over time. Now, I said that off the top of my head. I'm going to read what they're saying here. Engine building games typically present players with various ways to score points or complete other objectives, challenging them to combine them in more efficient and effective ways than their opponents. Uh, And then they have some examples here. So, yeah, I love engine building games. I think you're oftentimes presented with, you know, suboptimal choices and you're trying, what can I pick to make my engine the best at this time? It almost always includes other aspects of it. But once you've played an engine building game and you're like, you love that puzzle of that Rude Goldberg machine puzzles like a thing, you just, you get, you either get addicted to them or you hate them. But I, is, I, is a Rude I Goldberg machine like a puzzle? Um, it's not like a puzzle. No. Well, I don't know. It depends, right? If you're trying to I would say make, no. If you're trying to make a fried egg, but you need to use only pieces that are presented to you to try to get to that fried egg, it could be a puzzle on how you make all those pieces work together. Yeah, but the, the, you're... Okay. But with that definition, <laughs> you can make anything a puzzle. 
<laughs> Done. Um, does that, I mean, all right, how would you describe an engine building game? It's, how would I describe like an, an engine buildings game? Not yeah. like a Rube Goldberg machine, that's for sure. <laughs> Perhaps like an internal combustion engine. <laughs> yes, where you have to assemble every each piece of the engine. And if you do it well, it, it hums it like a Ferrari. Yeah, and if you don't, yeah, it blows efficient. up like a Pinto. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's only fair that this comes back to you, Fletcher. Euro game. What is a Euro game? Euro game. All right. So, again, without reading this, I hope I get this right. Uh, so, to me, a Euro game is a game that's like Catan, where the emphasis of the game is is not so much... It's not random so much. There is, like, a random element, but it's not, like... It's not totally random. I don't know. There's, like, a little bit of randomness in it. And there is no, I don't know, confrontation among players, usually. And it's kind of, like... I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. No, that's it's actually like, you did. That's pretty good. It's not like Monopoly. <laughs> it's not like Monopoly. No, you're, you're actually pretty spot on with that because there's very little, if any, conflict between players. It doesn't mean there's not a tug of war. It doesn't mean that one person can't do something that messes someone else up. Um, and there is a little bit of randomness, it's just not but direct. it's direct. It's, it's like, not. Oh, yeah, I wanted. It's that. not direct. You did it yeah. first. Yeah. You just did it first. You got there first. Um, and the randomness is almost always, I would say in a Euro, in a pure Euro game, the randomness is always before you make your decision. Your decision is deterministic, but the random elements that feed into what you can do to make that decision will happen ahead of time. Yeah, It's input yeah, rather than output randomness. But we exactly. can't talk about that again. So We can't use definitions <laughs> to describe definitions. I mean, we sort of can. Um, but yeah, so like I said, Euro games are... They're, they're non-conflict games. They're the opposite of the Ameritrash games, which are primarily conflict games and roll to resolve. You make a decision, then you roll something or draw a card or whatever to decide whether or not that succeeded or not. Euro games, you're always going to know what is going to happen when you make a choice. Again, most games are on a spectrum now where Ameritrash mm-hmm. is on one side, Euro games on the other. You're going to be someplace in the middle. And Ameritrash is not trash it's a different style of game it just sounds derogatory there's nothing wrong with that style of game i hear ameritrash used now instead of ameritrash yeah the dice the dice tower is trying was trying to make a ameritrash stick but people just weren't picking it up so they even they have came <laughs> Stop trying now. to make fetch happen yeah so ameritrash <laughs> yeah. ameritrash it's the same thing <laughs> all right kitty what's an expansion an expansion is a add-on to an existing game, usually that cannot be played without the base game. So something like Wingspan has the European Birds expansion, which are just more cards that get added into the game. There are some expansions which you can play standalone, but that is an exception rather than the rule. And there are some which are much more involved in adding new rules and elements to the game, and some are just adding more cards or that kind of thing. I think it's perfect. All right. So I get filler game. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A filler game is, again, it's one of those things that often can be used in a derogatory term. Oh, that's just a filler game. But essentially what a filler game actually is, is a light complexity, relatively short gameplay game. Um, these are the reason they're called filler games is because they can tend to take up the space between 
you know, heavy board game one and a heavy board game two, especially if you're going to mix up the groups. A few people might get together, play a short, easy game while waiting for other people to finish longer, more complex games. Um, honestly, I would say filler games are where you would want to bring new players in. Hey, let's play this game because it's easy and short and it's going to be fun. In my new let's try to make it happen like fetch, um, I think we should start calling them warm up and cool down games. Oh, I like that. I don't think it's going to stick because filler games Never. just sounds better, but <laughs> I'm going to go with it. It's We're too entrenched. L- longer. <laughs> All right, Fletcher, what's a flags? So I actually didn't know what this was until I read the definition because I was not <laughs> aware of this acronym. So I'm just going to read the definition. Friendly local game store. Often game retailers host game nights and tournaments in addition to simply selling games, and they may serve as social hubs for local gaming communities. Yeah. Now, this specifically has an FLGS as Friendly Local Game Store. Um, oftentimes, some they'll put the A in there as Friendly Local Area Game Stores. So it's your flags. So if you hear someone say flags, that's what they're talking about. They're saying, hey, go to the game store, not to Amazon. Amazon is not a flags. Amazon is Amazon. Kitty, 4X. I say oh, this boy. all the time, and I... I I forget the X's all the time. I have to read the X's because I never remember all of them. I can always remember at least two, usually three, and I never remember what the fourth is, but it's always different ones that I've forgotten. So this is expand, explore, exploit, exterminate. So these are... Exterminate. Exterminate. <laughs> games I almost always think of as being set in space, but they don't have to be. And these are... I think of Twilight Imperium as being your big 4x game or something like that where you are a playing as a civilization where you are trying to become the dominant civilization is usually the point of the game by taking these four actions of expanding exploring exploiting and exterminating your enemies I will say that I'm going to throw in another term that I just double-checked to make sure it wasn't on the list. These tend to overlap with what people sometimes refer to as sandbox games, where Mm -hmm. there's just a whole bunch of things you can do, and you're ultimately trying to get to a victory condition, whether that be points, usually points. Um, But you just have a lot of different ways to get there. And 4X being that, that expanding where you're exploring and and revealing a map. Um, Actually... That's explore. Explore where you're <laughs> revealing the map. Expanding where you're taking control of the map. Exploiting mm-hmm. where you're getting resources, typically, again, from the map. The map doesn't have to be on ground. It can be anywhere. But And exterminate, meaning there's some kind of combat involved as well. So um, also sometimes people will throw like the technology trees and stuff in the exploit or well, even the expand. It's a loose definition. Um, it just means you can do a <laughs> lot of cool things. And if you like a 4X games, they're more involved. These are the opposite of filler games. These are not filler games. These are <laughs> very elaborate stuff, stuffing games. Yeah, you're going to be sitting there and playing that for a little while. Speaking of which, oh, mine's the next one is game weight. Uh, this is how heavy a game is. So some games are weigh a few ounces. Others weigh like 22 pounds. When I got Gloomhaven, it was like super, super heavy. Um, also, it has nothing to do with actual weight. Uh, this has to do with how complex a game is. So your game weight, when we talk about filler games, is simple. It's going to be a low game weight. Where when you're talking about a lot of 4X games, those are going to be high in the game weight. So it's just like, 
it's it's I don't like the term game weight. It should just be game complexity, but those are synonymous. <laughs> That's what it is. Fletcher, gateway game. Gateway game. So these I would I would say that this is a game that is that is fun and people have probably heard of maybe, but it, it it's a way for newcomers to get into the hobby of tabletop gaming in general. I think that is right. I would go one step further and say these are the games that come after Monopoly, but before the rest of the hobby games. Yeah, okay, definitely. Like, it's not, uh, it's, yeah. So it's not like I don't those, know how to describe it. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's like af- after all those childhood games that you played, but before... Right. Um, before before Gloomhaven. <laughs> yeah. yeah, before Gloomhaven. Yeah. You will um, play can, Ticket to Ride. Yeah, Ticket to Ride and Catan are probably the two biggest ones in this category. Um, Splendor is another great gateway game. Um, these are games like, yeah, they're, they kind of, a they lot of them, them can... They sell them at Target. They sell them at Target. Um, and a lot of <laughs> them are can games that quali- you buy at Target. <laughs> a lot of them can qualify as filler games, but they don't have to be. Um, gateway games can be pretty lengthy, like Catan. That could take two, three, four hours to play, depending on your group. Um, so it's it's not necessarily length. It's just the the complexity. It's the weight of the game. These are lower weight games that are easy to teach people. Kitty, hidden information. Um, hidden information is information which is not known to all the players of the game um so something like your cards that you have in your hand yeah basically um and hidden information is used in a lot of games we don't even think about you know poker is a hidden information game right you only you have that information about what you have but like something like texas hold'em now you have two cards are hidden information than a bunch of public information. That's closer to what we talk about when we're talking about actual board games. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why a game might have some hidden information. And typically, part of the rules state you're not allowed to share that information that's designated as hidden. I think hidden information matters a lot more in cooperative games than it does in competitive games. In competitive games, it makes perfect sense not to share your information with your competitors whereas in a cooperative game if everyone has all the open information it makes it much easier for everyone to come to the best solution but it also allows the alpha player to come in and know everything and say i know what the best way is so i think it's often used in cooperative games to stop one player from really running the board Yep. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, there are some competitive games that have hidden information. So maybe there's an event that's going mean, to happen at the end do. of a round. And, you know, you're able to peek at that event card, but you're not going to share it with anyone else. That type of thing. Um, I get Hidden Trader. Hidden Trader is, I, I want to say it's always part of cooperative games or always part of a cooperative game. Not all cooperative games have Hidden Traders. But I can't really say that because as soon as you have a Hidden Trader... It becomes a pseudo cooperative game. So a hidden trader game is something that looks cooperative. It looks like you're all trying to do the same thing, except for one of you or one or more of you are not trying to do the same thing. And that can be awesome. It can also be loathe. These are the type of games where once you've played it once or twice, you know whether or not you love or hate these games. And Dead of Winter and Battlestar Galactica, these are probably two of the biggest hidden trader games but there's hundreds of them <coughs> fletcher like werewolf and like secret hitler be? um 
so those are going to fall under, let me double check to see that they're there. Yep. Those will fall under our category later on. Okay. Yep. Hidden Traders almost always start as a full cooperative game. Usually start out as a full cooperative game. Fletcher, okay. what's a meeple? So that would be like House on the Hill? Yes. Yes. Uh, no, 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 no. House on the Hill, that's not a hidden trader. It's a public trader. I wonder if they'll have something that allows us to disguise uh, yeah. that later. <laughs> uh, anyway, so a meeple is a, I would say, a, me- a meeple is a game token that's vaguely in the shape of a person. There you go. That's all it is. <laughs> that's yeah. no reason to go further. It was invented. Um, Carcassonne was the first game that used the meeple. And it wasn't called a meeple. It was... Well, I don't know what it was called, but it was not called a meeple, and then it became called a meeple in general. Um, I, I don't think it was called a meeple in Carcassonne. Now I have to go back and look. Kitty, what is a metagame? Metagame is usually using information that you know that is not given to you by the game to make decisions in the game. So something that you can deduce from your knowledge of games in general and apply it to a specific situation where you should not know that information. Yeah. And I will elaborate that. Sometimes you refer, you hear a term called the meta, uh, which oftentimes surrounds competitive games where the meta has a certain number, a certain set of decks that are just really good. And that is the meta. So if you're building a deck, you want to make sure that you're going to be good against the meta of the particular game. Yeah, I will say you hear it most often used either in um, collector, yeah, collectible card games or in um, role-playing games. And it's used a little bit differently in those two situations. In collectible card games, it's usually like the meta is these are the good decks, this is what you have to compete with, and they're kind of solving what the best play is based on everyone's collective knowledge. Whereas in role-playing games, it's usually something like, well, I'm going to be cautious about going over here because we've gone so many squares without a trap. And I know in this dungeon that, you know, every 20 squares, there's going to be a trap. So we've gone 19 squares. So I'm going to, you know, make sure every single person in our party rolls a perception check here. Yeah. Um, John mentions that any competitive game has a meta which is your your former definition. Um, I, get an, I get an easy one. Micro game. Uh, micro game is something that's just made up of a tiny number of components. Uh, so often there's a whole fad going on right now. I don't know if it's a fad, but it's a something where games will get made and it's an entire game with 16 cards. Um, Sprawlopolis is probably the most famous. Actually, no, sorry. Second most famous. Love Letter is the most famous of micro games um, where it's just like, Here's your 16 cards, and you can, that's all you need. You know, play the game. It's just this tiny, tiny little game. There's also games that fit in a pack of gum and things like that. Yeah, we just saw the, um, is it Button Shy games? Yep. They're all 18 card games. Yep. They focus, that's all they do is they focus on these it's micro a- games. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, Fletcher, one against many. A one against many game is a game where one person has abilities in the game that are far more powerful than any individual other player in the game but usually all those other players in the game band well they need to band together to take down the uh the player with all the special abilities yeah it's a team game that way yeah it's a team game where 
one of the teams only has one person. Yeah. Is it- <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and this can this can be anything. I was talking about uh, Mansions of Madness first edition, right? That's a one versus many. One person takes one side and everyone else takes the other side. So it's a team game where one side has, has only one person. Kitty, what's a party game? Um. Oh, I don't know if I have a very good family-friendly definition for this. <laughs> <laughs> um, my definition is a game you can play while you're drunk. <laughs> that's that's actually not terrible. <laughs> I would say a game you can play while you're drunk with a large group. With a large number of people, yes. So yep. something like Telestrations is one of my go-to party games. Love that one. Um, the game that shall not be named. <laughs> yeah. They have rules games that where can you be don't pl- actually keep score no one wins you just play yeah. forever it's like well, the the line between game and activity blurs <laughs> yeah th- there's oftentimes a way of scoring but the score tends not to be the important part yeah rules that you can explain in 60 seconds plays large groups and yeah you don't necessarily have to be completely sober to play them in fact they're <laughs> oftentimes more fun if you're not um oh so i had Hidden, well, we had in- hidden information. The next one's perfect information. Uh, this is simply a game that has, well, all the cards on the table, per se. Um, chess is a perfect information game. Anyone looking at it can see exactly where everyone's state is. There's not a ton of modern perfect information games because you want to have some kind of um, photosynthesis. Yeah, photosynthesis has perfect information. Everyone can see what everyone else can do. There's no hidden information there. Um, and that's all it means is there's no hidden information. Uh, Fletcher, player elimination. Player elimination is a game where players get knocked. The game type, I guess, that players will get knocked out um, of play as they play the game. So like Risk or Monopoly. Yeah. Normally, super fun if if you're not one of the end two or three players. Yeah. Normally loathed in modern board gaming. However, we accept it with party games and short games. So I mentioned Love Letter earlier. Love Letter yeah. has an elimination, but the games are so short it doesn't matter that you get eliminated because the games are, you know, 10 minutes long total if that. Um yeah, player elimination is not necessarily fun for long games and typically games tend to avoid this aspect of games anymore now it does still happen that you're so far out of the running that you might as well be eliminated but yeah that's a whole other episode kitty what's a programming game a programming game is where you set a number of actions to take usually simultaneous with other players and then your actions are revealed during a separate round in which you can no longer change the order of those actions and everyone's actions are revealed during the next phase. So you're trying to anticipate what the other players are doing while you are choosing your actions. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's about as good a term as you can. <laughs> you're, you're choosing one while well, you're usually choosing more than one, but otherwise it's simultaneous action selection, but that's a whole other, that's, Probably not on this list. But you're choosing two or more actions, and they're all going to get resolved at the same time through some kind of process. Um, It has nothing to do with programming. You don't need to be good at computers to be good at a programming game. Uh, The next one here is a real-time game. This is the opposite of a turn-based game. So instead of you taking your turn and you're able to think um, what you want to do on your turn, you actually have a timer of some sort. You're racing against a actual real clock uh real-time games 
again, those are a, a kind of a love them or hate them category of games, especially when you're talking about board games. But something like, you know, Captain Sonar, which is a team-based real-time game, can be one of the most fun of things you do. And then other games, you know, the same, another real-type game could just be horrible. But that's how games work, right? Sometimes they're great, sometimes they're not. doesn't really matter what the mechanics are. Fletcher was a role-playing game. A role-playing game is a game where the player assumes a role or basically controls a a specific character in the game and can dictate their actions or speech, even in in cases. I would say uh, that plus... So typically, um, it's a group of people. All but one is going to take on the role of a character, and the one is going to take on the role of everything else. And you're just going to tell a story collaboratively with each other. Um, there's a lot of different ways that can happen. They can be very rules and dice heavy, and they can be very rules and dice light. Um, but it's collaborative storytelling. Kitty, roll and move. You roll the dice. It tells you a number between, you know, usually <laughs> and you two move. and 12. You move that number <laughs> of spots. <laughs> you take the action David's- on that spot. You pass David the dice the, to the next player. <laughs> David says the definition is ick, basically. <laughs> Monop- Monopoly is a roll and move game um, where, again, you don't have any input on where you're going. You roll the dice and you end up where you're going. Now, there are some These roll are and move games, games that are played for kindergartners now. This yeah. is Candyland is a draw and move, but it's the same. <laughs> exactly. I will say that the most... Um, the roll and move that has the most agency of any roll and move I've ever played to the point where most people don't even think of it as a roll and move, but it is, is Zaya. Zaya is a 4X game, <laughs> space game. It's, it's, it's an amazing game, but its move mechanics are you roll dice to see how far you can move. Um, but you get to build engines so you can roll bigger dice to move further. Next one is roll and write. This is typically um, a game where you're going to roll a common pool of dice or, and these can be custom dice or numbered dice, or you'll draw cards or whatever. And then everyone else is going, well, everyone, including whoever rolled or drew the card, is going to react to the input in their own way and write down what they are going to do with those particular things. Um, Yahtzee is not technically a roll and write by this definition but the idea what you do with Yahtzee if you imagine a game where you're playing Yahtzee but everyone rolled dice and everyone played from the same dice you could potentially call it but for this definition modern board gaming does not consider Yahtzee a roll and write um Rondell Fletcher without reading what is a Rondell (laughs) (laughs) well um, I already read it because I looked ahead and I was like, I don't know what a rondelle is. I've never played any of these types of games. So if someone wants to describe what a what rondelle is without me just reading the definition, please go ahead. Um, you know something? Why don't you read the definition? Because this is a hard one to explain. Darn it. The definition didn't make it any more clear. <laughs> All right. I will explain a rondelle. A rondelle is an action selection game where your actions are determined by what's ahead of you on a track. And that track is circular. So you can move your piece X number of spaces. It depends on the game. So you're going to have a certain amount to choose from. But if you skip an action, you can't go backwards. You can only go one way. So I may want to take action A and B and C. But if I take action A, someone else is going to take B, and then I'm not going to be able to take B. So maybe I just go right to B, 
but now I can't take A because I can't go backwards. So it's really an action selection game where you can only move forward. Um, Is there honestly on moving more spaces than less? Uh, it, it, there can be. So there's usually the advantage of moving more spaces than less is that you get to take an action before anyone else could. The disadvantage to moving more spaces than less is you're probably going to take less actions in total, depending on the game itself. Um, Great Western Trail is a rondelle game because it's just the it's board just is so a long. Huge rondelle. <laughs> it's just a huge rondelle. But once you've moved past a particular spot on the board, you can never move back to that spot again. So it's a one-way path that you're going forward in. Sometimes there's branching paths and stuff like that, but you're always moving forward. And that's essentially what a rondelle is. Now, forward or circular. Yeah, because a lot of times these will be like, you know, there's a certain number and you'll go around. It, it can be a smaller action selection area that you will move circularly around but yeah john says if the track is circular aren't they all ahead of you technically sure if you can move infinite (laughs) space but normally these types of games have a limited number of space that you can move so in any micro instance you only have a limited number of uh, you have a line segment um rubber banding or catch-up mechanic i guess both of those those are synonymous all right, so this is my turn, right? Yep. yep. <laughs> I forget who where we are. All right. Um, so a rubber banding or catch-up mechanism is something where usually in games that play over a longer period of time, there can be things that happen early in the game that people get an advantage and start taking big steps away. But there are then other mechanisms that will allow someone who is in last place to make a big leap in progress. And it will only benefit you if you have fewer points and then you can jump forward. It is something to make games where someone can get a really good early lead feel more fair. Yeah. One of the, a good example of this would be if you're in last, so let's assume gold is a wild resource and you're playing a resource game of some sort. The person in second place gets one gold, third place gets two gold. Fourth place gets three gold. So the further back you are, the more gold you're going to get, which is going to help you catch up in future rounds. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's a ton of different ways that this can be implemented. Most games are very subtle when they do this. Some games are very heavy-handed. And if you can tell that a game has a particular rule that's specifically for a catch-up mechanic, then you've probably gone too far with your catch-up mechanic. Um, Just do a better... (laughs) job designing the game so that that type of thing the game is not balanced exactly (laughs) um the next one here is social deduction uh this is a type of hidden role game where you primarily do not have any other information besides everyone has a role um everyone may have different special powers and things like that but there's nothing There's rarely anything mechanical that allows you to figure anything out short of just accusing people of being liars. These are a very, very, um, they're borderline party games. You can play play them in large groups. They tend to have player elimination, but not all of them do. Um, But yeah, there's very accusational. You have to have a thick skin in order to want to play these types of games. And Kitty does not like these games. I hate these games. Fletcher, what's a solitaire game? So I find it strange that they call it like a solitaire game as, I mean, I would call it like a a solo game because solitaire is a game, but I guess a solo game or a solitaire game is a game that's 
designed specifically that you can play by yourself. You don't need any other humans to play with. Uh, yeah. And I read I read some of the definition here, and it says that some games are specifically designed to do this, and others are have a have other games have a solo mode that you can. Yep. So solo mode, solitaire, um, solitaire specifically, I would I would call that some of the games that was designed to be one player. Um, but I would definitely agree with solo mode should be lumped in here as well because there's a lot of games that were designed to be multiplayer, but have a way of playing them single player. Um, again, I don't want to be. I would say over half the games made today have some kind of way of playing them solo, some official way of playing them solo. I've done no statistics on that, but it just feels right. Kitty, what's a- <laughs> but it feels right to me. It feels right to me. Kitty, what's a solved game? A solved game is a game which is unbalanced and everyone has figured out what the way to win is. There is some position or strategy, which if you do this thing, you will win. I and would say no one likes to play them. <laughs> no, I would 100% agree with you. I would not have added unbalanced, but as soon as you said it, I would say, yeah, I agree. Because a solved game shouldn't be possible if the game, if the game's competitive on all sides. Like there should yeah. be multiple strategies. There shouldn't be one way of doing it. And when you hear something, it's like, when you hear someone say that's a solved game, it's probably synonymous with that's a dead game. Like there's no tic-tac-toe is a solved game. Um, yeah. You would only play that with small kids because the only way to lose their only way to win tic-tac-toe is for the other player to lose. So mm-hmm. if you're making the right move every time, you cannot win. Um, it's just solved. So there's not a lot of them out there, but you'll hear it sometimes. And, uh, and this does happen in unbalanced Euro games, we'll say, where it's like, just take this strategy. and There's nothing else you need to do. So the one thing that pops into my mind is actually an Ameritrash game, and that is Risk. If you have Australia, you are going to win. That's because it's not a hundred percent the case, but like almost always, it has worked for me so much of the time. John is shaking his head at me, but yeah, I maintain it's, if the it's, the person who has Australia has a huge advantage. <laughs> if you get it early enough in the Australia game, and New Zealand. <laughs> oh, I, I love Australia, Zealand, but Papua New Guinea or whatever is. <laughs> whatever they designate it as all right uh the next one is story game and this one uh, it's the first one on this list actually the only one on this list but i think is a kind of a loose definition so i'm going to read what they say here a term used to describe a subset of role-playing games which prioritizes narrative approaches over mechanical ones story games typically come with few or no statistics to represent character abilities um the only there's a few games like this, but essentially these are almost like improv st- story games. I wouldn't, I would never describe, I would never use story game to describe this. I would use story game to describe something where the narrative takes the front of it. Like, I, I, I don't know. I just, this one's, this one's trickier for me. I just, I think a story game is something where the story is first and the mechanics are there just to kind of fill in the, the space they're saying story games don't have any mechanics or often i guess often don't have any mechanics um you want to hear us talk about story a whole bunch last week's episode for you yeah (laughs) the um fiasco is probably a perfect example of what they're trying to describe here fiasco is a four-player game um well three or four player games where there's no dm and you're literally just going around the table making up stories as you go it's a writer table type of game and there i just introduced a new type of 
type of game. Writer table is simply a way <laughs> of getting ideas out there so people can start riffing off of them. Um, tabletop Simulator, Fletcher. So I had to read this one because I didn't know what it was. Um, but it makes sense. So a Tabletop Simulator is a computer you know, program, a computer app that allows you to, I guess, simulate a multitude of different types of board games. And it, it's different from just like you know a monopoly app because it this tabletop simulator will allow you to make incorrect moves i'm guessing yeah, yeah tabletop simulator piece wherever like real life yeah it's a software package um that you just you kind of you drop modules into it i think they call them modules um packages something along those lines um but yeah they don't follow the rules for you they just have certain elements here's a stack of cards here's dice here's your boards like you drop artwork in and you can make these games playable, but you're still doing all of the work. Um, as opposed to Tabletopia, which is their next one on this list, which actually does the rules for you, as so does Board Game Arena and so many other digital tabletop platforms. Um, but Tabletop Simulator is often referred to because when someone's prototyping a game, it's very easy to drop it onto Tabletop Simulator so that you don't have to actually make expensive prototypes. You can just play them there. And especially during, you know, a pandemic, Tabletop Simulator allows you to play a lot of games you what normally otherwise wouldn't be able to. Kitty, we've talked about it multiple times, but what's a war game? A war game is a game about war or set <laughs> in a in a war. Um, I guess it's I thought I was going to get Tabletopia. You robbed me here. Um, <laughs> uh, so a war game is a game where you are using rules to try to play out a real life or fictional war. Yeah. War um, or battle. By the rules. Yeah. Yep. Or battle of a war. Mm-hmm. Yep. So something yeah, like Undaunted. Games, yeah. They basically are simulating armies clashing. Armies or troops yeah. or whatever clashing. The scale can be anywhere from like three dudes versus three dudes all the way up to, you know, platoons versus platoons or armadas versus to armadas. Space battles in you know, theoretical three dimensions. Like you can get as big or as small and still have it feel like a war game. These can be miniatures games or board games. I would say both have war game. Yeah. Oftentimes. Yeah. You'll hear the, the term dudes on a map that could be, you know, (laughs) that type of thing too. Um, These are a subset of Ameritrash games. Almost all of them are roll to resolve. You're going to try to do something and then roll dice to, or roll something or some random number generator to see what the effect is. Um, Fletcher, I'm going to give you worker placement because I don't think you have any chance of knowing the last one. So, okay. Well, <laughs> worker placement was what I'm supposed to be doing anyway. But worker placement, to me, a worker placement game is kind of like an action selection game. But when you place your worker for the action, it may block other players from like performing that action or only a limited amount of people can can go there and and you're blocking people from doing that yeah i would Uh, elaborate yeah i would elaborate saying a worker placement game is like an action selection game but all of the actions are common to everybody anyone could take those actions first person there with their worker gets to take the action and typically will block other people from being able to go there not all games are like that there's a ton of worker placement games that allow multiple workers in different spaces and stuff but that's the general idea as a as an action pool that's on the board and you have workers that will allow you to take those actions kitty you typically have a limited number of workers and you can often gain more workers as part of the game so throughout the game you gain more actions by 
unlocking more workers. Yep. And the last one on here, which really should be the first one, because if you sort alphabetically, numbers go first, um, is 18xx. <laughs> but I don't think you should start with 18xx. I think that's something that you really kind of need to leave at the end. Um, these are stock trading railroad games. All of them are stock trading railroad games. Uh, it, it started out with, actually, I don't even know. It's, 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 I guess 1846 was the first 18xx game. And it simulates buying and selling of companies and company stock, basically, and building up railroad cars and railroad trains and created its own little subgenre where people just started making their own 18 xx games and there are dozens of them now they're all just crazy complicated systems they're the rule books are not meant to be comprehended by normal human beings um, i'm not saying that if you play 18 xx games you can't comprehend them because you're not a normal human being um you're an exceptional human being see how i spun that to work make that work like i wasn't offending anyone um these are complicated but also they can be immensely rewarding because you are playing in a system. And the reason there's so many 18xx games is because everyone's like, okay, I love what this game did, but I want to do this other minor thing here. And other people who play these games love to get challenged with new systems, new mechanics, new things that are popping up in their genre of games. And it's just insane to me that this has become its own genre of games. It's... It'd be the equivalent of saying, like, you know, creating a trading card game in 1992 and then everyone creating a trading card game that did the exact same thing, but only with slightly different card design. Yeah. So that's basically what <laughs> oh, happened wait. here. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's what an 18xx game. Really complicated stock trading railroad games. Um, they're all the same. Not They're not all the same. Every 18xx game is different, but they all have that core piece to them trains and stocks why that became a thing i don't know but that's cool all right it is time and this is a uh just because i know we're running long on time we have to draw new winners so we are going to draw winners right now um i'm gonna quickly add all right Okay, so we're going to draw two new winners, and this is going to be for um, your choice of games. If you win, then what I need you to do is email me within the next two weeks with two or three choices from the list in the show notes. Again, just go to tabletopgametalk.com, and you can see the list of games there. The first person of these two people who emails me, they'll get their first choice first, and then the second person will get whatever their second or third choice is. Um, We'll talk about shipping over email, so don't worry about that. And yeah, so give me two or three games that you are interested in, and we will go from there. So ready? Um, Let me share my screen so that nobody thinks we're cheating. This is how my accounting practice works. If you're new, you're looking at a Google spreadsheet, you will know that I go 54321, and then wherever the winner take comes up, that's who the winner is for that week. So, you know, 54321. And the winner is, of course, it's Miles Clark. (laughs) (laughs) So that is our first winner. Australia. Miles Clark. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering how long I'd be able to go before I had to ship something to Australia. So <laughs> next winner is 
five, four, three, two, one. Um, David Radke. All right. So you guys, Miles, you're li- listening to us right this very second. So um, that is <laughs> you can you can email me and let me know which games you're interested in. Um, David, also is David with us right now? I don't think so. Um, yeah, no, David ranks here. All right, sorry. There's multiple David, so and they're all with ours. It's really confusing. Um, but David, email me. Um, like I said, give me two or three games, and we'll work out shipping at that point. Other than that, I think that's good. We're not going to do anything post credits because a we didn't play this week, and b um, this episode already went long. So, Kitty, I'm going to hand this over to you. <laughs> I wasn't ready for it. I got distracted looking up the conventions <laughs> of where numerals go before or after the alphabet. <clears throat> Was I right? Um, no, is the short what? answer. Oh. <laughs> um, Apple does it that way. Apple says that they should come before, but basically you're allowed to choose one or the other, or if you are citing them by APA or MLA guidelines, you should spell out the numeral and it should fall where it would be spelled. Uh, I find both of those things ridiculous. Why don't you just read us the credits? <laughs> Tabletop Game Talk is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. If you'd like to follow us on social media, the links for Facebook and Twitter are in our show notes. Want to watch us record live? You can find a link for that in the show notes, too. Comments or questions? Email us at feedback at tabletopgametalk.com. Hosting fees and giveaways are sponsored by our patrons. If you'd like to be one of these wonderful people, you can find out how by visiting our website, tabletopgametalk.com, and clicking the Support Us link. And there's a link in the show notes, too. Finally, a huge thank you to our current patrons, Adam Harrison, Miles Winner Winner Chicken Dinner Clark, The Gifted Games, Jason Strong, John Lewis, Joe Hoover, Jeremy Fisher, Terrence Mittler, Sean Peck, Christopher Dong, Jennifer Engelbrecht, Brian Arnold, Michael Yanikowski, David Sellers, David Radke, Jason Marks, Anne Reynolds, Christopher Lethko, Stephen Judd, Leanne Verholst, Joe Rackstad, Weatherman Keith, Paul Raymer, Jimothy, Ben Gary, Matthew Droke, David Rank, Jerry Wong, C. Marie, Justin Willard, J- Jason Rodney, Cindy Loom, Eric Hoffman, Adrian Dong, Faz Flintham, Eric Salander, Glenn Cotter, John Williams, Sir Sully, Andrew Fayesh, Kamal Berth, Peter Fleming, Gary Bunker, Sahara Wentworth, Lightning Steve, Jim Conrad, Sean P. Kelly, Mike Smith, Caleb O'Brien, Don Gilstrap, Aaron Moore, Ron Nelson, Agnes Toth, Charles Pearson, Jesse Wheeler, and Ronald Roy. And thank you to all of our patrons. Pass present, future, and such. Until next week, keep playing games and having fun.